This is Healthcare Policy Unpacked, an exclusive podcast for Health Plan Alliance members, produced in partnership with Spring Street Exchange and policy insider Chris Condolucci. Welcome to the first episode of Healthcare Policy Unpacked. I'm Dennis Bolin. I work for you at the Health Plan Alliance, and I'll be your moderator. This podcast is really only part of the Alliance's expanded policy programming. It includes monthly podcasts, but that is just one of the new resources. In January, we launched a bi-weekly brief, and in March, we'll hold our first quarterly virtual forum. So I'm excited to get to it. I'm especially pleased to introduce Chris Condolucci, if you don't know Chris. When we began to think about partners in our policy programming, Chris came immediately to mind. He has a legal and policy practice that focuses on the ACA. While serving as counsel to the U.S. Senate Finance Committee, Chris participated in the development of portions of the ACA, most impactful, I think, for regional health plans, including the exchanges and the state insurance market reforms. So in the intervening years, Chris has been working closely with the regional health plans and developed a fuller understanding of the implications of what comes out of Washington for regional health plans. And that's why I think he is perfect for this work. Personally, I've relied on Chris's policy emails arriving in my inbox, which is why we asked him to help produce our biweekly policy brief. So Chris, welcome. I'm so pleased to have you share your insights. Let's dive right in, shall we? Yes, and thanks everybody for being here, and I'm looking forward to partnering with the Alliance. It's going to be a crazy 2021. <laughs> it is. Chris, it's already started out crazy, right? I mean, here it is, February the 15th. We're just 26 days into the Biden administration, and already he's broken all kinds of records for executive orders. What? He's approached nearly 40 now, you know, blown past Obama's nine and, and Trump's eight in the same time period. So there's really a lot more to come. Maybe that's a place for us to get started. Can you fill us in? Yeah, no, and I appreciate that. And yeah, I mean, it's it's been crazy. It's just a ton, a ton, a ton of stuff going on. I mean, President Biden got inaugurated on January 20th and went straight to work issuing, as Dennis pointed out, you know, up to 30 plus, close to 40 executive orders in the first two weeks paling in comparison to his predecessors. And one thing we did want to start on the executive orders was to say, yes, there's been a flurry of executive orders, but it's important for all of our listeners to understand that executive orders aren't the law. Executive orders are an articulation of the administration's policies, basically what the president wants to see his administration do over the first 100 days, over the first year, over the four years the president is in office. And executive orders direct the federal departments to effectuate the policies and the messages and the issues that the president wants to tackle during his administration. That's really all executive orders are. They're important, mind you, but we want to emphasize that they're not the end-all, be-all, and again, just an articulation of where the president wants to go. And we do foresee the federal departments, again, effectuating those policies, so we'll see regulations effectuating them over the next year, two years. And that's another thing that we plan on doing is providing policy insight and intelligence on those regulations, as well as other policy items. But Dennis, you had asked me earlier too, not even just so much what is President Biden doing through executive orders, 
But what's Congress doing? And so what questions are you getting in that area? Yeah, so people are looking out forward. Everybody's probably like me. You're hearing a lot in the media about budget reconciliation and sound bites. And my intuition is it's much more complicated than those sound bites suggest. So Chris, fill us in on what reconciliation is and how it works. Yeah, and I appreciate that question because to your point, the media has been reporting about reconciliation dating all the way back to even before the November 3rd election of last year. And they're obviously reporting now because Congress has chosen to move certain pieces of legislation through the process and the media and others explain the reconciliation process very simply, where they say, hey, the reconciliation process allows legislation to be passed by the Senate in an up or down vote, 51 votes relative to what the general rule in the Senate requires, which requires 60 votes for any legislation to continue moving through the process. But the reconciliation process is a lot more, or there's so much more to the reconciliation process than just this 51-vote threshold, which again is what you see reported. So really, to your question, Dennis, the way I like to simplify the reconciliation process and the fact that there is so much more to it is really I boil it down to four criteria. In order for particular provisions to be included in legislation, that can be voted on on an up or down vote, 51 votes in the Senate, there are four criteria that that provision has to meet. And the first criteria is the provision has to have a direct impact on spending, i.e. government spending increases or decreases, or the provision has to impact revenue, i.e. tax increases or decreases. And that is the baseline criteria that's most important for the reconciliation process. But again, there's three other criteria that I want to mention that people need to understand is that even if there's a provision that has an impact on spending and revenue, if it is determined by a Senate official by the name of the Senate parliamentarian, the woman's name is Elizabeth Abdana, who serves as a Senate parliamentarian currently, if the Senate parliamentarian feels that the policy embodied in that legislative provision is so significant that even if it has this impact on spending and revenue, it still cannot be included in a reconciliation bill. And I'll give you an example a little bit later of how that criteria kind of works in operation. The third criteria is related to the first one. Even if a provision might have some sort of indirect impact on spending and revenue, it still can't be included in this legislation, which could get 51 votes. And the last criteria, the fourth criteria, is that if the provision increases the deficit in year 11, year 15, year 20, really in the future years, the Senate parliamentarian will rule that that particular provision is not allowed to go into that reconciliation bill. So those are the most important criteria that folks need to understand that it's not really just the 51 vote threshold or the fact that you move through the reconciliation process to get 51 votes. There are specific criteria that the provisions have to meet in order to be moved forward through the process. And then one last item, Dennis, on the reconciliation process that's very important for everyone to know, and we'll touch on it a little bit later too, is Congress can only use the reconciliation process once every fiscal year. Now, the United States works on a fiscal year of October 1 to September 30th. 
So what that means is in a calendar year, the majority party is able to use reconciliation twice, but they can only use it twice. So it's not as if the reconciliation process is an open process, which is why I also wanted to note this limitation on how many times you can use the reconciliation process. See, I knew, Chris, I knew that this was much more complicated than the media sound bites suggested. And uh, that's why I'm glad we have you on today. So if this reconciliation process is so limited by the criteria that you just mentioned, why is Biden and are the Democrats using it to move the COVID stimulus package through? And what are the implications around that? Yep. And it's an excellent question. And again, which is why we're doing this particular podcast is one to explain to all of our listeners how the reconciliation process works and that there's a lot more to reconciliation than just 51 votes. But also, why is the Biden administration, congressional Democrats using the reconciliation process in the first place? Well, you just mentioned the words, Dennis, the COVID stimulus package. Now, President Biden came into office and the congressional Democrats came into power and taking a majority in the Senate after the January election, and they said, look, we want to attack the COVID pandemic, and we want to enact another COVID stimulus package to the tune of $1.9 trillion is the price tag for the package that the Biden administration and congressional Democrats wanted to pursue. Well, Majority Leader Schumer was unable, or it did not look as if Majority Leader Schumer was going to be able to get 60 votes to move this $1.9 trillion stimulus package. So if Majority Leader Schumer can't get 60 votes to move the bill, what can congressional Democrats and Biden administration do? What can they pivot to to try to still enact all of their policy items? Well, that place for them to pivot is the reconciliation process. And we just explained to you the reconciliation process. And as of February 5th, the House and Senate Democrats actually voted on a budget resolution that greenlighted moving the COVID stimulus package through the reconciliation process, again, affording the COVID stimulus package this 51 votes, provided, however, the provisions included in the stimulus package meet the four criteria that I mentioned earlier. Now, why are we now talking so much about the COVID stimulus package? Because most of our listeners are saying, well, you know, COVID stimulus is not really healthcare related, right? You know, it's extending unemployment benefits, it's direct payments to Americans, it's funding for vaccines and whatnot, which has a healthcare component, mind you, but primarily it's a non-healthcare-related legislative package. Well, the Biden administration, congressional Democrats have actually added a number of healthcare items into this package, which is very important, we believe very impactful for Alliance members. Now, what are some of those healthcare provisions? Well, first and foremost, The Biden administration and congressional Democrats want to increase the Affordable Care Act's premium subsidy. In addition, the Biden administration and congressional Democrats want to allow individuals with incomes above 400% of the federal poverty level to access the premium subsidies. So there is a proposal that is included right now in the underlying legislation that would increase the premium subsidies and would blow off the 400% of poverty income limit. And that's impactful for a number of reasons, but I'll at least just give one. Folks in the unsubsidized market, 
who are making more than 400% of poverty will now have the ability to access a subsidy. Now, very important caveat to this particular provision of increasing subsidies and blowing off the 400% income limit is these provisions are temporary. The legislation that we now know and we've seen only makes that available for 2021 and 2022. But it's also important to understand that Congress likes to do things on a temporary basis. They do it really for two reasons. One, Congress doesn't want to spend a lot of money. So if you make a program which has a lot of spending, which increasing the premium subsidies and expanding eligibility does, you limit the spending associated with that particular provision. That helps with the reconciliation criteria that I just mentioned, right? But also, Congress likes to put things in on a temporary basis because when it comes to extending the policy, Congress oftentimes does not have the courage to say no. And also, the Democrats are rolling the dice that they control the majority in both houses of Congress. Obviously, they'll have the White House in 2023, that they might be able to make this particular policy permanent. So not only is it noteworthy to mention the increase of the premium subsidies and the income limit change, but one, it's temporary, and two, it could become permanent at some time over the next two to three years. Included in the legislative language is an increase for federal subsidization of COBRA subsidies. As we all know, if an employee is terminated, they can elect COBRA, which is almost an extension of their employer plan. Well, here, the federal government would be subsidizing 85% of the COBRA premium for that individual that elects COBRA. Now, that's also on a temporary basis. It's only through September of 2021. Hey, maybe that gets extended. Maybe it doesn't. But it still is very important to talk about the federal COBRA subsidy. And the last healthcare item, Dennis, that I'll mention is there is a 5% FMAP bump for states who have yet to expand Medicaid. In other words, the Biden administration and congressional Democrats are incentivizing the holdout states to expand Medicaid finally. And if they did, uh, the federal government will actually cover more of the cost of expanding Medicaid than even under the current ACA as an incentive Now, mind you, that provision is only temporary as well. So let's say the COVID stimulus package is enacted into law. And let's say this 5% FMAP bump becomes law. I would assume it's effective immediately, but then it really comes down to whether the states are going to go ahead and expand, which might take some time. So folks might say, oh, well, this is great. You know, there's this incentive for expanding Medicaid. Well, there's no guarantee that the holdout states do expand, which is another important caveat to mention. Well, Chris, if you didn't before, you've got my attention now. Three things that you mentioned really jumped out to me that those of us in the alliance will be monitoring as part of this. One is the expansion of subsidies, second, COBRA, and third, Medicaid expansion. So those alone, we've got to be tracking and monitor those and not to be too cynical about it. But, you know, what is the saying? Never waste a crisis. So with these items in this COVID uh, stimulus package, what can we look forward to? What happens now? What happens next? Now that the reconciliation process has gotten the green light by Congress and we have seen the legislative language of what the underlying reconciliation bill is going to look like, the committees of jurisdiction 
have also marked up the legislation and approved that particular legislation. Now, the next step is it will go to the House floor. The House floor will vote on it up or down. Then that package will go over to the Senate and the Senate will process it. They will have a discussion between the minority party as well as the majority party. They will talk to the Senate parliamentarian who is, as I stated earlier, the person who determines whether the particular provisions meet the criteria that I explained. And once you get through that process with the Senate parliamentarian, the legislation will be brought to the Senate floor. A vote will be held. If Majority Leader Schumer can get 50 of the 50 Democratic senators to vote yes, then Vice President Harris will be the 50-versed vote. And the next thing you know, it goes to the president's desk in which the legislation will be signed. So that's the process from here to there. But there might be some changes in some of the provisions that I just mentioned to you. Some of them might fall out. Some of them might change. Maybe the income limit, for example, which is blown off entirely, maybe it just increased from 400% to 600% or 800%. So I just want to give you a sense of that Even though we're talking about these provisions, which are looking more and more likely of actually happening, there could be some changes along the way in the legislative process. And when it comes to next things that are really focused in on healthcare, you mentioned the potential for reconciliation to be used twice in the same calendar year, just once in each fiscal year. So looking long term into the summer and fall, anything we should be watching for there? Is there anything else that we should be looking at? Sure. So one, the regulatory process as those gears continue to move and the federal departments start effectuating the president's policies, be on the lookout for a lot of regulatory activity. But most importantly, and really, Dennis, to your specific question, we will likely see, if not, I 100% believe we will see another reconciliation bill in the last quarter of 2021. Now, what will be in that second reconciliation bill? Well, we're still waiting to see, but increasing the premium subsidies is not the only thing that the Biden campaign campaigned on and President Biden and Vice President Harris campaigned on. They also were interested in adding a public option to the individual market. They were also interested in creating a Medicare buy-in for individuals ages 60 to 64. Could we see those proposals as well as other proposals relating to the ACA premium subsidies included in a second reconciliation package? I think the answer is yes to that. Great. Well, like I said, there's a lot of moving pieces. And you said up front, Chris, 2021 has already turned out to be a crazy year. And um, I'm going to throw in another adjective. It's going to be interesting, going to be fun, hopefully a lot of opportunities for Health Plan Alliance members. But we'll buckle up along the ride. And Chris, I can't think of anybody else that I'd rather be on the ride with, that I'd rather have ride shotgun with me than you. So thanks for today. Yeah, and buckle up sums it up. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode in a few weeks. Until then, keep an eye on your inbox for the next issue of our Policy Brief. To engage in a live Q&A with Chris Condolucci and our friends at Spring Street Exchange, be sure to register for our upcoming Policy Forum. Learn more at healthplanalliance.org. See you next time on Healthcare Policy Unpacked.